There's mummies and dummies and ghosts that bark. <laughs> There's goblins and ghoulies that wait in the dark. Merry Christmas, you filthy animal. If you wish to wet your pants with fright. Come Santa Claus, come Santa Claus. Whoa, whoa. Listen to Kathy on Goosebumps tonight. I'm going to go. My dudes, and welcome back to Gatsy on Goosebumps, the only show in which I read and review every single one of R.L. Stein's Goosebumps books from the original series. This is not one of those, because today I'll be looking at Silent Night 2 by R.L. Stein, which is part of the Fear Street Super Chiller series of books. For disclosure, this was meant to be our, uh, our Christmas episode. Forgets you on Goosebumps, um, unless you're listening to this several months after it's been recorded, you'll notice that it is not Christmas. You know, it's meant to be a re- recording with my usual co-host, the Dungeon Master, but on the day, you know, a few days before Christmas, when we were set to record, he sent me a text message saying, um, you know, I, sa- I said, hey, uh, where are you? Got to record. And he's like, uh, sorry, needed to go back to my uh, hometown, which is a place called Piercedale, sort some things out. And I just said jokingly, sounds like you're going to go back there with a shotgun and, and settle some old scores, LOL. And he just responded, just said, drop it. But I thought, oh, God, I've read the book. I dedicated my time to reading Silent Night 2. So, you know, why waste potential content? So here I am, solo, sort of a throwback to the uh, the Gatsby and Goosebumps reviews I used to do on YouTube, where I just turn the camera on and start rambling about the, about the book I just read. Sometimes uh, pissed, but sometimes not pissed. I'm, I haven't gone that far in, in recreating the experience this time. I am stone cold sober. And will remain so for several hours. So, Silent Night 2 by R.L. Stein. So, yeah, this is part of the Fear Street Super Chiller series. I haven't read any Fear Street books outside of, uh, of, of reading Silent Night 1 last year and now Silent Night 2. Um, was never my, my bag growing up, so I really don't know what to... What it what is sort of normal for a Fear Street book, and I don't know what distinguishes a super chiller from a regular Fear Street book. I know Fear Street, sort of like Goosebumps, there was a you know a series of spin-off series besides the original Fear Street. Um, that I, I don't know the the sort of the sort of what what denotes one Fear Street from another. I think the first Fear Street book was 1989, so it predates Goosebumps from a few years, and uh, definitely a targeted at older demographic teens, maybe rather than preteens for Goosebumps books. Uh, so you do get. More than you'd get in a Goosebumps book in terms of more adult themes. Sort of straddling that awkward line between trying to make it sort of edgy enough to be entertaining for teens, but still appropriate enough for teens to read. So the original Silent Night, which we reviewed last year, came out in 1991. Uh, This Silent Night 2 came out two years later, 1993. And it is a, a direct sequel in the sense that it does follow the same characters. Most notably the character of Reva, or Reva, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, it's not a name I've encountered before. I'm going to say Reva, Reva Darby, and her cousin Pam, to a lesser extent. Reva's the, the main attraction for both of these books. And I presume, I know there's a third Silent Night book, um, I presume she's in that one as well. So it's sort of based around this this one character. So just as a recap, Silent Night 1, essentially Reva is a very, very nasty girl. Comically nasty, almost, uh, to the point of cartoon supervillainy, almost. She's just very, very mean, deliberately, and she's given very, very little in the way of redeeming qualities. She's the son of a department store owner. Darby's is the name of the department store. Brilliant. And she's very spoiled, very rich. Her mother's died. Her dad's 
seems to be quite preoccupied with the business. Mm-hmm. He does seem like a fairly all right kind of guy. He's not evil like she is. And she's just um, just very nasty. <laughs> like, even when she gets nothing out of it, she'll uh, put people down for no reason. She'll trick people. She'll um, steal people's boyfriends quite frequently and break up with people for the fun of it. And so this is why in the first Fear Street, um, there's so many suspects when pranks start to happen to her. Quite cruel pranks. She sent a needle in her lipstick. She sent a perfume bottle with blood in it. And eventually she sent a dead body. Whose dead body is sent to Rhea in Silent Night 1? I can't remember. The plot is really, really complex. For something that came from Fear Street Super Chillers, it's really quite hard to follow. And um, I can't remember all the details. And I have actually, in preparation for this review, I have actually uh, looked it back up to try and sort of work it out again. And yeah, no, there's, there's too many disparate plots going on. Again, it's more complicated than probably it needs to be. But essentially, you know, she's implicated in a murder or a robbery turns out, you know, there's lots of things happening that actually have nothing to do with it. A lot of red herrings, like quite a good sense of misdirection in that story, but probably to an unnecessary degree. So pretty standard resolution there. Our character learns a lesson and resolves to be a better person. Except she doesn't, because at the start of Silent Night 2, she is back to her old ways. She's really just learnt nothing at all. So she is working at Darby's, along with her cousin Pam. Two things there. Besides, like, I think one, like, sort of nightmare sequence in which uh, Reva relives the events of the previous book, she didn't seem to be that psychologically scarred. And she's back working at her father's department store, which was the site of, of all this trauma last year. There's a line, you know, her dad says, you know, I thought it'd be good for you to, to face your fears, essentially, and go work there again. And your first instinct is to be like, what a horrible father. There's no mention of therapy here. You're just pushing your daughter back into the, the same place where she had all these horrible things happen. But she seems fine, to be perfectly fair. Again, besides that one sort of nightmare sequence, she doesn't seem that affected at all, which is perhaps why she hasn't learned a lesson after all, undoing a lot of the emotional growth in the first book, and she's back to just being very nasty. Pam is also working at Darby's sort of role in uh, staging one of the multiple robberies in the previous book is sort of not mentioned, and she's just or mentioned very fleetingly, and she's just working at the department store she tried to rob last Christmas. So, Reva's old man can't be that bad. And Pam's got a boyfriend now. She's very happy. Again, Pam doesn't have very much in her life. She's always been very poor in contrast to her very wealthy cousin. And Reva decides to steal uh, Pam's man, essentially, because, I guess, because she's bored. Again, bad things for the sake of, of bad things. Very one-dimensional kind of character. If it's the wrong thing to do, she wants to do it, and she sort of uh, revels in it. Or should that be Reva's in it? Yes, it should. So she's having an affair with Pam's boyfriend. That's sort of half the plot, is following uh, Reva being a nasty person again. The other half follows a duo of people around the same age, Prez and Diane. And they are very poor as well. Like, a lot of poverty in this book. Or at least a lot of money is mentioned, and money is a problem, and the the motivation for money drives characters' actions, which is obviously something you'd never get in, in the Goosebumps universe. Poverty doesn't exist in the Goosebumps universe. It, the biggest problem affecting the economy is... Uh, influx of monster blood. Prez is not his real name. It's his nickname because apparently he looks like Elvis Presley. Which, like, I don't know. In 1993, did teenagers still have an awareness of, 
like what Elvis Presley looked like. I mean, I, I doubt anyone could get the nickname Prez today just in like high school because El- Elvis just doesn't have that cultural resonance. I feel like he probably didn't in 1993 either. I think this is more Mr. Stein slipping in his own cultural and social markers into the story. Prez and Diane want money and despite you know there's never they're not really mentioned as 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 criminals if there's a history of 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 crime on their part it's not really mentioned or certainly not elaborated on they're just a couple who are poor and want money they resolve to kidnap reva and ransom her from a wealthy department store owning father and they really really underestimate I guess the severity of this crime and, of course, how difficult it is to do in practice. It's sort of approached in the same manner you might have characters robbing a store, robbing the local milk bar after the owner goes to sleep, which is still a crime and actually a worse crime in 2023 because we know how many corner stores and milk bars are going under because they're unable to compete with uh, Coles and Woolies. But that's neither here nor there. For American listeners, Coles and Woolies are the two biggest supermarket chains. I feel like there are no Americans listening. Sometimes I feel like there's no one listening at all. But they approach this kidnapping with the same sort of naivete and, I guess, uh, lack of seriousness as they would with just something like that. You know, they treat it very much like a victimless crime. Which, of course, it's not. There's one victim, which is the person you're kidnapping, presumably under the threat of violence, and they just assume this will be a really, really easy crime to pull off and it will solve all their problems. I'll get ransom money from Mr. Darby and they'll be set. Now look, to Mr. Stein's credit, their first attempt at kidnapping Reva goes very, very poorly. But like any couple chasing the American dream, they resolve to just stick to their guns and they recruit into this conspiracy Prez's older brother, Danny. Now Danny is the central villain of this piece. Prez and Diane are quite nasty and they're quite uncaring and they are clearly very selfish but they do elicit some sympathy. Danny is the loose cannon, and he's prone to violence. And it's sort of described in a way that, it, you know, it's it's some sort of psychosis or some sort of mental illness he has, where he sort of gets agitated and starts, I think it's described as he gets a headache and he starts seeing red and he's got to, you know, act violently. And it's never very convincing, to be honest. It's neither sort of written as like a slow build-up, a slow build-up and he explodes, and it's not written as like a... Uh, a snap that he goes through, a psychotic break that he goes through, and then suddenly changes personality. It's poorly written. And he does resort to violence in the book, which is, again, something you just wouldn't get in Goosebumps. So, the three of them try again. And they accidentally kidnap Pam. Oh no. Fortunately, Pam is released. So that's two failed kidnappings. Third time's the charm, as they say. And they go around for a kidnapping once again they manage to get both Pam and Reva into their cars and they store them in the storage room of the department store that Reva's father owns and their rationale is well no one would uh think to look in there it's the last place they'd think to look I feel like that would be the first regardless that's where they're locked up and it is revealed in a twist that this third kidnapping is thanks to Pam. Pam, essentially when she was kidnapped, during the second botched kidnapping, when she was mistaken for Reva, she resolves to help the kidnappers kidnap Reva. Why? Because she found out that Reva was uh, having an affair with, with her boyfriend. It's it's dumb, obviously, that's obviously quite a big reaction, but the way Reva is written, and the way Pam is designed to elicit sympathy, it's sort of believable. You sort of do side with, with Pam. It's like, you know what? 
I'd probably organize to get her kidnapped as well. But joke is on Pam, unfortunately, because they refused to let her go. That was part of the deal. Hey, I'll help you get Reva, Reva, and then you let me go. No, that's not going to happen. Should have got it in writing, I think, Prez says. Good one, Prez. So moral of the story is even if you're mad at, at your cousin, don't organize to, to get her kidnapped because you will get kidnapped as well. And the kidnappers will... Um, not release you despite your initial agreement with them. It's quite a, it's quite a, a long lesson. Anyway, they're trapped in the storage room while the trio of kidnappers call Mr. Darby for the ransom. During this, this phase, you know, we see more of Danny's, uh, villainous aggression. He really wants to, to kill people quite frequently. Again, in a way that isn't necessarily believable. It's never mentioned that he's got a history of actually killing people. He's got these violent outbursts. And, you know, during the interrogation, he does, I think, break Reva's arm deliberately. And he think he, he strikes Pam so hard that she passes out. Quite shocking for someone who's only familiar with R.L. Stein's more whimsical work, if whimsical extends to haunted cameras and beasts from the east. He approaches the idea of killing in the same way that Prez and Diane approach the idea of kidnapping. It's just something you do, and he does have a, a gun with him, so he's capable of doing it. But, like, he wants to do it quite often, because uh, Prez and Diane are not very good kidnappers. They use their real names in front of the ki- in front of their victims, so victims know who they are. And Danny's like, ah, they know who we are now. We've got to kill them. But this is before they've got the money. I think it's before they've even made the call, which again does highlight how little this group knows about kidnapping. But it's very odd, Danny's tendency to want to kill the two girls. Like it's meant to make the reader think, oh, they're really, really in trouble here. You know, this this person at any moment might kill them, but it's never written as believable. The main emotion that Danny displays throughout the book is is not this cold, sadistic side or this calculating mastermind. It's a sort of petulance. He's just like, oh, I'm annoyed. Oh, they stop calling out. I'm going to hurt you. Like there could be quite a, quite an interesting take on a psychotic violent villain. It's never written very well. Danny, despite you know, being the source of all this tension and this danger, he, he never comes across as very convincing. And efforts to increase the threat he poses through the physical violence he inflicts on his victims, it's sort of shocking, but not, not very grounded. Anyway, because once again, and I need to stress this, they're not very good kidnappers. They make a call from inside the department store, which instantly means the police <laughs> trace the call. This is like kidnapping 101. They already know the girls have been kidnapped because they tried to kidnap them before and actually succeeded in Pam's case. So they're going to be expecting a call. Brilliant thinking, guys. Call the victim's dad from the store, which he owns. Anyway, police are made aware. The girls manage to escape. And they're running through the department store. It's quite a long, drawn-out third act, you know, sort of them trying to survive. Being killed by, by Danny, essentially. And through a narrative point that is, is to Stein's credit, set up previously, doesn't just come out of nowhere, he ends up essentially falling down an elevator shaft and going splat at the bottom, I think. I don't think splat is the word mentioned. But yeah, he accidentally steps down an elevator shaft trying to pursue them and he dies. Quite a long drawn out sequence, as I said, probably sort of diminishing returns about the false scares that, you know, Stein is so, so renowned for using. Cliffhanger clanger. Anyway, the police turn up, Reva and Pam are safe and apologetic to one another. Sorry, I stole your boyfriend. That's okay. Sorry, I got you kidnapped and, uh, very nearly murdered. An eye for an eye, I guess. And so after Reva's second traumatic Christmas in a row, will she change her ways? I haven't read Silent Night 3, but um, 
I have a feeling not. I have a feeling if she didn't change her ways after the previous traumatic Christmas, she's not going to do it this time, which adds quite a layer of unbelievability to, you know, what is meant to be a more grounded, more serious novel from Stein. In the sense that, you know, the, the dangers are real. It's not someone turning you into a chicken. It's someone breaking your arm and, and wanting to kill you, which, you know, unfortunately there are people out there who want to do that. So it does take away somewhat that we had this big, you know, emotional climax for Reva at the end of this first novel and then instantly, instantly she's back to her old ways. And yeah, it, it is unrealistic. To make the comparison to Goosebumps, You've got Monster Blood 1 where characters Evan and Andy are, you know, traumatised by this big monster blood, that this substance that keeps growing and almost consumes them. And then in the second book, Andy's like, hey, I found this monster blood. Do you want to use it as a prank to get back at your mean teacher? And the logical side of you is like, Andy, why are you going near this stuff? You were traumatised from the first book or any normal person will be traumatised. But then you're like, look, it's a kid's book. You know, you have to sort of allow these things so that you know that the plot can can still occur i'm not prepared to give that much leeway to a book that does engage with things like poverty and infidelity and violence you know these are much more real characters in these these two books of the fear street series that i've read so i do expect from one book to its sequel to be some level you know and some acknowledgement of of the events of the past book besides a you know fleeting nightmare sequence or a dream sequence and to have those events change characters i expect that from something positioned as, as as more realistic i think the twist of having pam as part of that final kidnapping is is a pretty good one and again i said realistically it's it's not a it's not a balanced response you it is written so you understand where she's coming from and you almost you do sympathize with her after what reva's done to her story in general is is much much easier to follow i think it's it's, it's the level of complexity that a book you know from the fear street super chiller series should be i've also got to say it doesn't really feel like a christmas theme thriller which is what it is it's more a crime thriller than any any horror i think which is not necessarily bad but i guess besides the setting of it happening at christmas it's not very christmasy themed you know prez and diane and danny they they just want money it's not like they they need the money to uh, buy a new christmas tree so give me something give me something to to link it to to that holiday season the the cover of this this novel features a santa claus or someone in a santa claus costume grabbing reva from behind and putting a hand over her mouth and that's sort of explained as like a, a fake out in that that long drawn out sequence at the end with all the fake scares it's not actually it's just a santa mannequin she imagines it good one stein keep them keep them turning those pages Cal- Cliffhanger clanger. But that's that's sort of what I expected more of. Neither of these books have felt very Christmassy. And that's such a fun aesthetic to play with, you know, thinking of something like Silent Night, Deadly Night is the, the, the Christmas slasher, which admittedly I haven't seen. But play with the Christmas idea a bit more. Overall, it's a it's an easy read. It's uh, I can certainly imagine, you know, in the same way I as a preteen would pour over Goosebumps books and, you know, and then move on to the next one. I can certainly imagine teenagers doing this with the Fear Street series. Um, and for that, it's perfectly fine. Just a, some cheap thrills. I've got to say, it doesn't do much for me. I'm older than the target demographic for this, which I am with Goosebumps as well. But Goosebumps just has such randomness and such weirdness. And there's such a variation of quality that they're, they're fun to look back on. Even as an adult, there's, there's a novelty there. Having not grown up with these Fear Street books and sort of only having the frame of reference of like being an adult and reading them now yeah doesn't do that much for me maybe if i was more in tune more aware 
had read more of the series, I would have a better idea of where these this book and where its predecessor lie and if it is a good Fear Street book and maybe appreciate it more in that sense. But coming to it as an outsider like I am, gotta say it doesn't really do that much for me. And I will give that two out of five stars. Stein, you dropped the ball on this one. And that's all we have time for. Hope you had a Merry Christmas and didn't get kidnapped and stashed in the storage room of your father's department store. And if you did, well, I hope you learned something from the experience. Please follow me on Instagram at goosebumps.podcast. I will talk to you all very shortly. But in the meantime, please stay spooky.